Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. everybody back for round two much anticipated um james and i are gonna start reading some books together we encourage you to join us if you're interested and the first book is cult america which actually the title actually freaked out some viewers um and it is written by one Mitch Horowitz, who's very interesting. He's got a background in publishing, and he's what you would call a scholar practitioner. So not only is he a scholar of uh, specifically new thought, which we'll get into what that is, he's also a practitioner of new thought. And he's very aware of the relationship between new thought and AA as it morphed through William James into Bill Wilson into the big book. So ideally we'll talk about that at some point. But before we dive in, James is gonna give us a little overview of the book. Sure, yeah. Uh, the book is uh, structured as a series of short histories. It sort of takes um, the subject of occult in America from um, uh, the time of settlers up through what he calls the new age, which he puts at around, I'm going to get this wrong, like 1960 through the eighties through. Yes. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so the, the new age is not the focus, but it's kind of the end cap of the, of the, of the text. He starts with the definition, a fairly loose definition of the occult, and then tells a bunch of stories about how um, that sort of, the subculture evolved over time in the United States. And uh, it goes through several phases. I have to take notes here. <laughs> um, it starts with sort of early settler, settler mysticism, which includes things like um, uh, Mormonism and Joseph Smith and his kind of uh, experiences with seeing stones and, and angels and such. Um, it moves from there into mesmerism, which is sort of it begins in Europe, but sort of gets imported into the United States. Um, it's sort of the origins of like hypnotism, um, which is also the origins of psychotherapy. Um, but it's the early stage uh, idea that you can affect other people's minds and control things. Um, then a little bit through theosophy, spiritualism. Um, spiritualism is like the sort of fad and big craze that happened when people were first um, believing they could communicate directly with the dead. And that became a popular phenomenon. I guess not when people first thought that, because people have thought that basically forever. But in the United States, when people first were, <clears throat> you know, sitting around and having seances or using Ouija boards and such. Then into New Thought, like Pierce said, which is a sort of like power positive thinking movement, this idea that what I think controlled my destiny. Um, it uh, dips into hoodoo for a chapter. Um, touches a bit on the origins of the neo-Nazi movement and then moves into the new age. So it covers a whole lot of ground and tells a whole lot of different stories along the way. 
I found the book, like when I was reading it, I found it um, really captivating. I think it does a really nice job of telling the stories and getting you kind of into these worlds and the experiences of people. It's sort of like spiritual experience after spiritual experience in all these different weird, unlikely ways, right? <clears throat> yeah, I thought it was very captivating too. Yeah. Um, so maybe a couple just talking points. What was like your the things that really grabbed you? Yeah, there was a couple of pieces that stood out most to me as like, um, like they kind of popped in and caught my interest, right? And one was a chapter on the Ouija board, which I think kind of freaked you out. It did actually. <laughs> um, the Ouija board thing caught me for reasons we can get into in a little bit, but it was sort of this weird overlap with my dissertation research. Um, meaning that my dissertation research was about recovery writing. I interviewed a bunch of people in recovery about how they wrote. Um, some number of people said they had experiences that were like, I suddenly started writing and, and what I wrote, I didn't, I wasn't even aware of what I said until I read it, or I felt my hand moving across the page, or God inspired me to write something. There was sort of the sense of like, um, the writing was taking place in communication with some other being, the spirit or God or whatever people call it. Um, so literally like automatic writing kind of. Literally automatic writing, right? In like the spiritualist sense of like, you're asking something to write for you through you, right? Mm -hmm. And that's very much kind of the territory that's covered in the Ouija board chapter, except that it's like got this extra funky collaborative, you and me are both touching the thing and then uh, it just reveals whatever it reveals to us, right? Um, so that caught me as an like, interesting comment on the kind of stuff I've been researching. And then I like this chapter on, what's the guy's name? There was a story in here that like could have been, uh, Frank Robinson, could have been an, uh, an AA story. It was the mail order prophet chapter. <laughs> that was a great this, this old drunk and he catches a spiritual experience somehow. And then he starts uh, selling uh, lessons by mail and, you know, walks around a small town in a fur coat and drives a nice car. <laughs> um, Pretty classic, like that felt like the most um, 12 steppy moment to me is like this guy could have hung the bill, you know? Yeah, I could see that whole story being done in a, in a Frank Capra film. Yeah, right. you know, Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was good stuff. Um, okay. How about you? Like what were the parts that, that popped for you? Um, the things that I really liked, and I want to find the name of this person just so I give her credit. So there's a chapter called Go Tell Pharaoh. Pharaoh uh -huh. About the, it's called The Rise of Magic in Afro-America. And he gets into basically what is variously called um, root magic or hoodoo magic, not to be confused with voodoo. So it's H-O-O-D-O-O. -O -O. And what really, really got me about this was a couple things. One was it was talking about what I think is particularly American, which is this kind of, well, I guess it happens with religions around the world, but this syncretism. So that's these different religious things meeting each other and creating something else, but it's very much like folk magic. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not coming from on high, it's rising up from the people. And 
you know, he's really pointing to how some things came over to America with, um, with slavery, with the Africans, and then over time they would use just very household things for divination, like the bones off of the chicken dinner, a deck of cards, not tarot cards, playing cards. Um, and then in some parts of the country, the, well, and I can't find her name. I wanted to find it. I looked up the scholar who studies this, but this woman points out that root magic in different parts of the United States is very different. So what she says is uh, root magic in parts of the South, where there were a lot of Jewish people settled, and the Jews were merchants to the African-Americans, you had this sort of Kabbalistic um, Jewish mysticism meeting the folk magic and then kind of landing in a way of reading the Old Testament. So even though most of the African-Americans were Christian, they were really into the book of Exodus, being led out of slavery by God, and that really interesting. But then she says, if you go to San Francisco and you're down by the ports, the root magic got very much mixed up with Chinatown. Mm -hmm. This was really fascinating. She said, all these uh, black exploitation films of the 70 with, you know, Carl Lee and Kung Fu fighting was actually African-American culture butting up against Chinese culture, Chinese martial arts, Chinese medicine. And she says, if you go around the country, you see these different flavors, these different spices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, and then the other thing I liked is I was, I was really taken with Edgar Casey. Mm -hmm. So um, the fact that he had these super humble origins, he had these sort of psychic gifts from a young age, but he was really, you know, he's kind of an Appalachian figure who knew his Bible and it evolved from there. And he, he became famous and somewhat even respectable, but he never really, I don't know if this is, yeah, I'd say this, he never sold out. Oh, yeah? He never became what so many of these figures in this book do, which is chasing the dollar bill or chasing right. some kind of political power or you know, getting, getting all weird politics and stuff. Right, which is not to say that he didn't have like a patron who sort of influenced him in some ways. No, he did, but remember the very end where he gets the letter, and he was so good about answering these letters about the young man who's tortured by the sexual orientation. Yeah. And given Casey's Christianity and, you know, demographics, the guy, he couldn't have been more kind and progressive, you know, really wonderful. Right. So there were high points and low points. Um, you know, both prior to us recording, James and I both said that when we came back to the book to prepare for the conversation, it was a very different experience than reading the book to begin with. Right. And I'd like to hear more about how it was different for you. Oh, well, I guess it's more like <laughs> level of excitement or freshness or whatever, mostly. Mm. We were reading through it, the stories are so vivid that it felt really exciting and I had all these new ideas about, you know, what to say about it. And then when that sort of cooled, going back to it was like, um, 
I don't know, I've moved on and I'm reading other things that go into some of the stuff in more depth. And so this sort of feels like the, the surface of some, a subject that's very deep. Um, and it also feels like, um, I don't know. So I don't know how you are with reading in your spiritual life, but I tend, or at least historically, I tended to look for books that felt like they have something practical for me right now. If I pick it up, on the toilet in the morning and I read it and my brain is going to be set in a certain way for the day. Right. <laughs> and there are certain books that'll do that and other books that are like curious and interesting, but they don't have that kind of, they don't ground me or whatever. <clears throat> so this is a book that's fun and, and interesting and curious, but it doesn't have that kind of practical 11 step in the morning kind of feel to it for me. Right. Yeah, no, it definitely doesn't. Right. Um, you know, what it did for me was the reason why it was kind of, um, so when I came back to it, the book disturbed me more coming back to it. Uh -huh. And the reason why it disturbed me was kind of what it wasn't saying. Mm -hmm. And um, having, you know, I'm always doing research. So, and there's all, you, you know, this, there's all kinds of weird serendipitous synchronous phenomena doing research. And so one of the things that I did was I've been doing is I'm getting very much into a kind of um, deep dive into who Frank Buckman was and what more rearmament was really up to. Mm -hmm. So the audience doesn't know this. The steps largely evolve out of this, this thing called the Oxford group, which itself will later morph into something called moral rearmament. And, um, the part of this book that's talking about that these strange characters was it uh william pelly or something yeah uh william dudley pelly i think william dudley pelly and so this book doesn't to its credit this book doesn't hesitate to talk about some of the strange strange far-right affiliations with the occult right mysticism religion generally and when you study um, Buckman, he's he's moving in these same circles as this Kelly yeah. guy, right? Hmm. And um, some of the criticisms of the Oxford group are like this. This is really interesting. This is all new stuff. One is that people would leave very quickly saying, there's no Christ in it. Hmm. No Christ in it. And Buckman seemed to be mostly fixated on what he called soul surgery, which we would call kind of like the fifth step. Yep. But he had a particular focus on sexual content. So he's got, you know, he, he, he wanted to get players and shakers and movers, prominent people, money people, professional people, and he's got them in a group giving up the goods on their sex lives. So, uh, there was a woman who left very quickly after she saw that and she called it um, a Christian nudist camp. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then the other thing, which I think we both saw in the book about the big book was how when they did silent time, which was the other big thing that um, Buckman was into, you could receive messages 
or inspiration, whatever you want to call Holy Spirit, from about somebody else in the circle. Right. And this is what really turned off Bill Wilson, thank God. Because Bill Wilson, these guys kept saying to Bill, hey, Bill, man, we're getting this message that you're supposed to go down and proselytize to the guys on Wall Street, which would be consistent with Buckman wanting to have the money power brokers. And Bill's going, I'm not getting that at all. <laughs> like, I'm supposed to go help these drunk guys. Um, so I, I started reading this, and then I started reading this stuff about this Pelly guy, and then I'm thinking in terms of today and how so, so much sort of um, a lot of the uh, uh, conspiratainment world and new age world actually is very right. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing this sort of thing evolve, right? That bothered me. Right. And then the sheer whack. When you say very right, you mean very sort of right wing. Right wing, that's right. So very, um, uh, you know, if Buckman, for instance, was very anti-union, very anti-labor, mm -hmm. um, and he was soundly criticized for having this, you know, supposed Christianity that really had no interest in broken people, right? Downtrodden people, right? Now, people, the the defenders of Buckman will say. Yeah, but, you know, he, there's this time when he met Gandhi and all that, but I think his detractors would say the reason why he wanted to meet Gandhi was he knew that that would be on the cover of the newspaper. It wasn't some sort of interfaith religious pluralism thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there was stuff like that. Um, and then it, some of it's just so damn zany. Back in the, the, the okay, sure. You know, call, yeah. <laughs> Like Ouija board stuff is weird, and uh, you know, hearing hearing the ghosts come to you in, of the dead is that's weird, right? And, and the fact that it's just spread across this country before it jumps over the pond, you know, there's something about here mm -hmm. that like really grooves on that. We were ready for weird over here. We were ready for the weird. Yeah. I mean, so were you surprised with the Ouija board that there were precursors to the Ouija board? I kind of known that a little bit. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I mean, I've seen, I've bothered to, like in the past, I've looked up like spirit boards or whatever, and there's like an online museum and you can see all the different weird configurations of it from like, they're different from like the Milton Bradley standard or whatever. whatever. Right. Um, so I knew that existed. I didn't think of it as like, um, I guess I hadn't associated it, I should have, with, with like, um, because in my mind growing up, it was such like a, you could buy it in Toys R Us, right? And the book kind of talks about this. It goes through the whole cultural history of Ouija boards, like, you know, from spiritualist technology to um, toy for your kids that you buy in Toys R Us, right? Um, and that was more my association with it. So thinking like, oh, this was, this grew out of the desire to popularize. And this really goes to the thesis of the book, right? Um, uh, the spiritual or the occult in America is very much about um, democratizing the secret knowledge, right? So a special few mediums are able to contact the spirits. Well, that's not good enough. We want everybody to be able to do it. Um, so here's this Ouija board that you can just do with your friends at home, right? Anyb and anybody's capable of it. You can sit around and 
and uh, ask for something to move the cup around, right? Um, that's a very interesting, like, artifact. Ouija board is an interesting artifact, both of this sensibility towards spiritual realities and the desire to make those realities, for better or worse, like a thing of public consumption and discussion rather than like um, a secret for initiates. Right? Yeah. Right. And yet the story that you like the most, I wouldn't call it a secret for initiates. I mean, the element of democratization is there. I'm gonna let you tell the story, yeah. but it's still kind of highbrow. I mean, that's what's so striking about that story to me is this isn't the stuff of sitting around the f fire and telling some weird ass Ouija board story, which can be really good. Right. This is about a noted poet. Oh yeah. Oh, I, I picked that up. Yeah. Yeah. So, James Merrill. There it is. There you go. I didn't realize when I bought it that it was that big. <laughs> 600 pages of Ouija board poems. <laughs> so this guy and his lover, I believe, although they're not fully explicit about that, um, get a little house in Connecticut and a Ouija board and start communing with the dead. And he's already a noted poet when this happens. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Um, and this... The, this is sort of a collection of three books of poems and a play, which were all written with Ouija board stuff. Uh, and each of the sections won different literary prizes and stuff and were well noted at their time. Um, so in the book, he calls it like the, the literary classic of the Ouija board or the, the spiritual movement, right? Um, and you can see it because it's very much uh, like deep reflective poetry, but then all, every once in a while, can I show you this? I don't think I can. Every once in a while, there's like um, lines or stanzas of the poem that are in like full caps. And that means this is literally take, this is, this is dictation from the Ouija board. Um, and he sort of gives indications elsewhere in the poem of like who he's talking and when and where they're from. And So there are multiple Ouija board personages in this Yeah, <laughs> it's really weird. So first they're like uh, in contact with this guy Ephraim who is like a, he's like a, a Greek Jew from like the first century in this weird town that he names and they later look up and confirm that that town existed. They didn't know before. Um, there's little confirmations like that of their, of the, of the top, right? Um, but then they also contact like the, the spirits of their dead parents who pass away while they're writing the book um, and, and dead friends who pass away while they're writing the book. Um, and then like other poets, Wallace Stevens shows up and um, the editor of um, Pope, I don't remember his first name, uh, is like the, some sort of spiritual advisor in, to James Merrill in ways that they didn't know. Uh, and then in the second book, they start, <laughs> they start getting contacted by like vampire bat brains that are there to like fuck with human DNA to evolve some kind of substance that they can consume and become more tangible. It's really, it's really weird. What era was that written? Uh, the second one where it gets to vampire bat brains were in the 70s. Um, the earlier stuff was like 50s. Wow. How was the, was the vampire bat brain stuff received well as poetry? I won, they won, yeah. What prizes did it win? Maybe I can find that. It won some kind of national book critics circle award or something. I don't remember. But yeah, it was. And there's like, um, 
you know, Harold Bloom reviewed it well and all that. It got, it got like the, the biggest trumpets were blasting for this one. But it's really like in the second book, especially, the first one is more like very much grounded in the human experience of contacting this weird thing and being uncertain of it, but being fascinated by it. And it's sort of grounded in that like, I don't know, the earthiness of being a human being in contact with this weirdness, right? Yeah. Now, the second one is almost entirely like, we're using the Ouija board today. And then all this block text of like, what the bat people are saying about the universe. I mean, to somebody who, you know, a few of the people that reacted to the title of this book, yeah. you know, they would be validated by that because yeah. Like, yeah, you mess with that shit and yeah. it's going to get you. Right. And so that, that feels like, you know, the way they would argue it. Yeah. Notice at first it was benign and then it became, you know, you went from mom to the, that vampire things like, real quick yeah right um and you won literary success for doing it so there's even that like weirdly uh temptation of it at all or whatever yeah like I, I think people are not wrong to be i'm not gonna pick up a ouija board i'm interested in it and i'm interested in what it has to say about like the way writing works but i wouldn't recommend it as an 11 step practice no although <laughs> yeah there's certain precedent for it as an 11 step thing. Yeah. I mean, Bill wasn't afraid of all this stuff. No, was there some story about him using it to contact, uh, now I haven't hunted this down, but somewhere in the cobwebs back here, there's the story about him using the Ouija board to contact some Saint something or other. Saint Boniface. Yeah, right. Yeah. Saint Boniface, who was a real saint, and Bill suggested, I don't know how strongly he suggested, that Boniface was the patron saint of the 12-step movement. Right. And he did, I believe, mention this to Dowling or Francis Ford, one or the other. These guys are Jesuits, and they were like really kind of compromised by the whole thing because they were like in the Boniface, but they were like, don't shouldn't be messing with that shit. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, that's a good place to go in a way because I don't know about you, but I kept noticing the different streams, right? So you got Swedenborg, who's like, even though he's a European figure, he's very much influenced America. Uh-huh. Um, same with Blavatsky. Blavatsky too, but I think less so because with Swedenborg, you know, he mentions Johnny Appleseed. So Johnny Appleseed would, real fig, historical figure, quintessential American. He would tear up Swedenborg books and put parts of them on the crossroads in the frontier of Ohio and Indiana. Um, William James, his father, Henry James Sr., was deeply into Swedenborg. And then there was a great um, Swedenborgian landscape architect. Maybe he was an architect. Now, right now, I can't remember. Burnham. His name was Burnham. And that is, I believe, Lois Wilson's grandfather. Okay. So Lois grows up in the Swedenborgian church. Um. You know, this is kind of interesting. Swedenborgianism 
had a very kind of class thing. It was sort of professional. Um, Swedenborg himself once was on the cover of Time or on a list in Time magazine of one of the 10 smartest people who ever lived. You know, he's an amazing engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a, the Swedenborgian thing was kind of an upper crust professional thing. So you got that filtering down, you know, into AA, through Lois, through William James, into Bill. And then you got the new thought stuff, which I'd like to talk about more. And then you have what is Horowitz's thesis, which is this sort of practical, democratized spirituality that, you know, I don't think the 12 steps could have been born anywhere but here. Right. And, you know, most, most rank and file AA members don't know that, you know, Lois was in the Swedenborgian and Bill had a spook room and Bill and, and, and Bob was in, in on it to a degree too and all that, you know. So to me, it's like our movement or, you know, is very much cut out of the same cloth that Horowitz is writing about. Right. Um, yeah, it's at that weird intersection of like the, the Oxford group before it really becomes moral rearmament. Yeah. Before it's like preaching to nations instead of preaching to, to men or whatever it was. Yeah. So right at that beginning and then within this cultural context of all this uh, spiritual weirdness that, you know, we're calling occults. Right. So if you, if you go back, you see, you know, the, the antecedents, you see like he's, he talks about in here how a bunch of stuff through masonry and interest in hermeticism um, jumps the ponds with some of the founding fathers and, and, and leading intellectuals. I think it's important to remember that that stuff is very Protestant. Um, it's hard for people to get their head around that, I think, that Rosicrucianism was essentially a Protestant thing, and Masonry is considered the devil in some Catholic quarters. And so these ideas are all kind of moving around. Um, it seems like there's a disinhibition here from studying those things that might be over in Europe. I don't know that. Um, then there's the encounter with the Native Americans, both mostly violent, but also some synthesis. Mm-hmm. So you've got all this folk culture from the immigrants meeting Native American wisdom with this overlay of masonry and hermetic stuff. And then, then you know, in the 19th century, we get Emerson. And so here's this guy who's like Unitarian, really, although he kind of turns his back on it. And he starts reading Eastern Vedic literature. And then that combines with the individualism of America and the practicality, but it's still like going as far out as you can possibly want to go. It's got a flavor. This whole thing has got a flavor. Right. And I think you're I think you're right in pointing that like the soup is a richer blend of ingredients than even Horowitz captures here, right? Oh, definitely. Um, so we get like a, 
And I think the part of that, so that's one of my criticisms of the book is that um, like it tells all these really cool stories. Um, the stories that it tells are mostly those of men and mostly those of white men. Not entirely, because it has that great chapter on who, like you pointed out. But it felt like there's a lot, depending on how loosely or broadly you define the term of cult, like there's a lot more things you could include, right? If a cult just sort of means like contact with the spiritual world in a way that you want to share with other people, if that's what it means in the, in the American context, uh, then all of that stuff seems like it's ripe for inclusion, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's yeah. missing, but... It's like, I mean, he's definitely, and I, I don't know if it's a fair criticism, but he's writing a book he'd like to read. Yeah, sure. Um, and th that really brings me to this, the whole new thought thing. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of one of those weird terms that you get a hard, it's hard to nail it down because it's so amorphous. So William James called it mind cure. It will become new thought. Today, it's associated with things like the secret or the prosperity gospel in Christianity. It spreads in these different currents. Um, and it, it always comes back. It never seems to die. It has its many, many critics. Um, Horowitz, who to me seems to be intellectually of a much higher caliber than a lot of people that swim in these waters. I've heard him say that, you know, it has shortcomings that are, it does not deal much with feeling with the effect of life. And it doesn't deal well with human suffering mm -hmm. and it doesn't deal well with um, the body. Right. So, it's this spirituality that's um, in, in the Christian circles today. They say, name it and claim it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's yours, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, think positively, have a single mindedness, kind of work with the mantra. Um, the guy that Horowitz really likes, this Neville Goddard guy, says the imagination is God. So, your imagination is God in you. Reality, in some sense, is plastic relative to your thinking and your intention. And, I mean, this stuff is, like, it is strong. I mean, COVID and the crash of 2008 and, you know, the shrinking middle class and all that stuff, it doesn't, it makes it even stronger, it seems to me. Um, and I find it, frankly, profoundly disturbing. New thought as a whole. As a whole. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll never get Horowitz for an interview now. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, take Bill, for instance. I, and I don't want to bash Bill. A lot of people think I bash Bill all the time. But, you know, Bill... To his credit, he wanted to help alcoholics and he was very democratic about that, but his own sort of politics were very much to the right. They're very anti-FDR. Uh, they weren't particularly, you know, they're not 
in favor of labor and things like that. And his favorite minister, although Bill never really claimed Christianity, was Norman Vincent Peale. Norman Vincent Peale, who's in here, is the New Thought minister. He's a Presbyterian minister, huge church, really famous. And Peale himself was very anti-union, very anti-FDR, anti-New Deal. What people today don't realize is this period of time um, from the Depression until the fall of the Iron Curtain, you know, there was so much anti-communism and there was so much quick association between being liberal and the sense of pro-labor and all that is having red tendencies. I mean, I, I don't, young people don't really realize this anymore. Um, and, you know, you know who else was really like Norman Vincent Peale, loved him, in fact? Donald Trump. So Peel is this interesting figure that appeals to Bill Wilson and Donald Trump for largely the same reasons. You know, unfettered capital, positive thinking, single-minded willpower. You know, you're, it doesn't matter if you're wrong. Don't say you're wrong. You just, well, that's more Trump. But just do it. Um, and, you know, that's that's... It's not the gospel that I follow. No, <laughs> no, it's missing. So, actually, do you mind if I read a little piece out of this? Yeah, I'd love it. Okay. So this is from my guy, um, no, I'm forgetting his name again, Frank. <laughs> Frank Robinson, right? Okay. This is the, he's very much a new thought guy. He's very yeah. much a joke. Um, mail so, order guy. Mail order, mail order mystic or prophet. Mail order mystic, and he, his mail order stuff is all new thought stuff. Um, and I think it's a bit, I want to read a bit of the story and then the way it lands, um, I think it's really to Horowitz's credit, a bit of a critique of new thought as well. Right. So, um, Robinson grows up, uh, he's, he's born to a hard drinking minister in England, I believe, uh, his mom dies of pneumonia. Dad sends him and his brother off to America with like not really any money. And they're basically like orphaned on the streets of America, eventually like find a job move ahead and then it says um, as time passed Frank Robinson discovered a crippling habit binge drinking um, and then he gets kicked out of like a bunch of different military services <laughs> in multiple countries um, classic sort of alcoholic story and then we have this then one Sunday morning everything changed Frank returned home and sat alone in his room um, and then on that day, he pleaded to be shown something more, challenging God to reveal himself. Oh, God, he cried, if I have to go to hell, I'll go with the consciousness that I went there earnestly trying to find you. Uh, rather than feeling hopeless, however, Robinson found that a strange sense of peace settled over him. He felt powerful yet relaxed, as though uh, lifted to some higher place, which is almost like the Bill Wilson moment of like, there is a God, he hasn't shown himself to me, right? And then has that same kind of thing. Um, Robinson came to realize that through the right exercise of thought, this holy power could be tapped as a limitless resource. He determined to spread his vision of, quote, a workable, usable God, unquote. It was a do-it-yourself thinking turned to the furthest extreme, an audacious, heretical, and profoundly American approach to religion. Also a very AA approach to religion, right? I was totally messed up. I caught this lightning in a bottle um, and... I don't know what it means or what the reality of it is, but using that lightning is what we're about, 
right? It seems like very on point for that. Um, and then in one of the few passages where we actually get some sense of what these people do, like I'm always reading these stories being like, if I wanted to do what they're doing, what would it, how would I do it? <laughs> you don't get a lot of that in this book other than buy a Ouija board and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> but right here, you get a little piece of his uh, mail order prophet stuff. Uh, and it says, he encouraged the repeated use of this key mantra. And it sort of gives two, two, two mantras in a row. First one is, I believe in the power of the living God. Uh, and the second one is, I am more and more successful. Which the difference between those two is like, maybe the whole critique of new thought, right? When I think of myself and imagine myself in the spirit of, I believe in the power of the living God, that's a kind of grounded, connected, and even ethical space, right? Because um, if I believe in that, then I'm, I'm more responsible for it on this earth, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I am more and more successful has no religious content, <laughs> only has this sort of American um, rags to riches story, uh, kind of um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps ethic to it. Well, really, it's just sort of like, if I believe it, I'll magically get more and more wealthy, and that will be the confirmation of the spirit in my life, right? Name it and claim it. Right, right. It's exactly that. Um, and then Horowitz comments um, in the next paragraph, like New Thought as a whole, Psychiania, which is the name that he invents for his thing, had difficulty providing ethical depth, which I think is exactly what we're talking about now, right? This idea that, um, cool, you can have a new car and a fur coat um, because you prayed all day, but so what? Like how, if, if there's no like ethical imperatives that come out of that or moral principles that come out of that, you don't behave better or differently toward other people. You don't improve their lives in any way. You're just sort of getting rich off of praying right. Um, then what's really the substance of that? Yeah, that is so troublesome. Right. And so now we do see a lot of tacit, not always explicit, messaging that goes, if you're spiritually fit, it'll be reflected in your bank account or your sexuality or your physical appearance. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, that's, you know, really, really removed from the cross. Yeah. Whatever that means to you. Sure. Um, now, to AA's credit, and this is, you know, I do have a deeper appreciation of Bill for having read a book like this or done that Oxford group research. You know, Bill, Bill will stay politically the same preacher, um, but he really does believe that this is about meeting alcoholics in their depths. And that lightning in a bottle, I love that, is there. Right. And that the manifest, and I think I think this is more than implicit in the steps. I think this is explicit. That what you do with that is you help somebody else. Right. Right. Um, although, you know, this is getting dealt towards resistance recovery now. I think that the things that you're not allowed to relate to your spirituality that you're discouraged from doing in AA mm -hmm. 
kind of reflects some of that, that political consciousness of Bill and Buckman and all that. Okay. But we're not supposed to look at, at alcoholism as having anything to do with racism and war and economics and the machinations of the government or big pharma or all that. So it's kind of interesting. It's, it, there's, there's some sort of anti-activist thing in the genetics of AA and New Thought. And actually a lot of this stuff, and, and the few people that do get political, they get political in a really ugly way. Right. Um, right. And I'm not saying we should all be political. I just, it's just so odd for me to think of spiritualities that don't contend with the huge questions of, of human suffering and evil. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it seems like, and I, I did once upon a time talk to a new thought person who was very committed to it. And she basically was arguing with me that if everybody took this approach, then that would be the new Jerusalem that there would literally be a universal prosperity. Right. Um, and you know, that's just like. Right. We don't have the material resources on this planet to pull that off. Like. Not so long as six people have. <laughs> right. Um, no, we're all going to be like those six people. Yeah. That's, that seemed to be what she was saying or yeah. Or they, they, they were somehow tapped in and we just, you know, um right yeah so that's what scares me about a lot of this you know the the on heroin book that uh brilliant book by brian culkin he talked about adderall and speed being the drug of people that really buy into that mm -hmm. i'm gonna i'm gonna continually self-improve i'm gonna outwork everybody i'm gonna stack credentials and and furthermore, I'm going to sell that rhetoric too, because you know Tony Robbins just bred millions of Tony Robbinses, right? Um, and then sometimes I'm in AA and I'm like, whoa, I'm beginning to hear kind of a Tony Robbins thing up here. Yeah, you do hear it sometimes. You hear the stories of like, um, I got my everything back, right? Yeah. Everything's back and, and better than ever. And look yeah. at the real success I have now that I'm a year sober, two years sober, three years sober. I got my car. I'm find my job, pretty lady, blah, 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 whatever it is, right? It's like, right. my body's better than ever. I'm working out. I feel great. Lost 38 pounds. Yeah, so, and that seems to be what they're selling in terms of if I sponsor you. Yeah. Yeah. You'll get, you'll have the job too, and you'll have all the, you right. want what I've got, and what I've got is all this material stuff. Right. You know, I'm more interested in, I'm out of prison. I, I'm never going to get very good job. I want to be a decent dad. How do I deal with that? What are, what are, what are the spiritual resources for that? Right. Um, right. But yeah. So yeah, it's the politics of the book were, or I should say this, the William Dudley thing was really disheartening for me to read. <laughs> it was really hard. Maybe uh, we should break Dudley down a little bit for the yeah. audience. Right. So I, I mentioned earlier that there was sort of a neo the birth of the neo-Nazi movement, 
covered in this book, and that's him. That's William P. Dudley. Um, he has a kind of a spirit, out-of-body, visionary, spiritual experience. It was um, one of the early popularized near-death experiences, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Right. It's just a sort of spiritual vision quest or whatever. And then he writes about it for some popular magazine um, with most of the racism censored out. Um, but then, you know, over time becomes progressively more and more um, committed to his sort of white supremacist ideas and then publishes a revised version of the, his story um, that contains things he left out, apparently. I don't know. I don't know if it's like he decided to add some things in or if he really edited them out before. Um, but the stuff that's in this time are like, um, I don't even want to quote it, but it, it, it's, very, it's explicitly racist and spiritually racist in the way that's like, um, you know, human beings have evolved spiritually. Um, and of course, white people are at the top of that evolution. We're the best, we're the best spiritual people. <laughs> um, and so we need this political movement to sort of enforce that reality on, on the already oppressed in this country. Right. Um, so totally gross um, and also very scary in, in its implications. But the thing that got me about that um, was that if he is to be taken at his word, that that content was, you know, he had this out-of-body experience. He met with spiritual mentors that were also disembodied. They were higher creatures or whatever. And they taught him these racist things um, and sort of encouraged his political activism in this way. Um, then that means that the content of his spiritual experience was itself racist, right? Um, and that's not something, like, I've had a bunch of disillusioning experiences about what spiritual experience can be <laughs> over time, right? And how it may or may not affect people's politics over time. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a sort of like the low point in that arc was like, somebody can have like the white light experience and then come out of that more racist than before. Right. It's almost like it deepened and confirms their convictions. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So what's curious about that is, so this is a spiritual experience that's not, there's no sense of redemptive in it. Maybe. I mean, personally, he says that he's better off than ever before. Right. But then ideologically, he's like on this other trajectory of like, I'm going to go start this movement to hurt people. Right. But it's not that near-death experience where, you know, he encountered his own shadow and was like, yeah. holy shit, if I, you know, if I get to live, I'm going to try to make things right with some people. And right. Almost like the other way around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and I think that's another point here that we're not, we're not seeing much of those kinds of redemptive narratives in the book. Um, I mean, the thing, the point that's really, you know, sort of really quite interesting is um, when you talk about the hoodoo magic and all that. Yeah. Um, I once met some scholars from this, they were American scholars, but they studied Asian religion, specifically Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, Americans have these really weird ideas about, you know, Thailand and Sri Lanka, like people meditate in their houses and right. 
do all that. And they say, you know, for a lot of people, Buddhism is like Christianity here. You observe certain holidays and you go to your places of worship sometimes and maybe a little domestic rituals and that kind of thing. But they said, you know, a lot of the spirituality of these places, the vitality, the place where the energy is, is just kind of a folk spirituality that's really preoccupied with uh, divination, mm -hmm. um, healing, conjuring, and matchmaking. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of street spirituality of the common person. Right. So obviously practical, super practical. Right. And so I think that in a way, you know, this democratization theme is in a way just sort of, because we don't, we're not a, we're a post-indigenous people for the most part. So it's a kind of a, it's a folk spirituality, but it's got this weird relationship to the marketplace. The new thought. Well, new thought and all of it, really. I mean, well, it's mostly new thought, but the guy's a mail order prophet or, um, you know, the whole thing about how Ouija boards, you know, the whole chicanery of how that became whatever right. the toy company gets it. And yeah, yeah, it's always got this kind of... Even with the, with the spiritualists, the sort of the Fox sisters and their, um, you know, toe knuckle cracking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Like uh, they sort of invent table wrapping or whatever and, communicating with the dead and it becomes this huge thing it becomes publicized and like so yeah. part of that democratization is also like a commercialization or popularization of the thing right yeah now i think we're getting somewhere yeah um i wouldn't have thought that but that's probably kind of what's another thing that's eating at me yeah um it's like, let's commodify this bad boy. That's something yeah. in our GNA, DNA that we do. Right. We really do. Right. Um, and that's probably one of the reasons why Casey was so impressive to me that, you know, he had financial problems. He did try to improve himself financially, but he never was particularly good at it. And he didn't turn people away. Right. Um, I want to say that there's something in our DNA like that too, that's good, but it's sort of drowned out by all this other yeah. stuff. When you say our DNA, you mean like people in general, you mean like recovery? No, I mean, when I say DNA, I mean Americans. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. Something about helping your neighbor. Or and not, not looking for, yeah. Right. Not just being decent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's in us somewhere. You don't see a lot of it in the news. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't see a lot of it in the marketplace. You do still see it in AA and hear about it. Yeah. And there's still a lot of people that go to church that lead lives like that and so on, or synagogue or temple or whatever. But right. Yeah, it's it's it, it, to me it was ultimately a troubling book. There's um, one more piece that he doesn't cover, not a lot, that I think might be worth touching on which is the, we don't get a whole lot of like debunking stories. Mm. Like we don't, we get, we get the history of, of seances, but we don't get the Harry Houdini coming in and sending spies in to find out how it's faked. Right. 
Um, and there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that, like throughout all this, right? Mm -hmm. I had this out-of-body experience. Well, how do we know? Or I, you know, I'm talking to spirits right now. You can hear them knocking on the table or um, I'm mail order selling you the dream of, of being rich and famous. Like yeah. the, 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 it's constantly flirting with this idea of um, fraud um, and like con artistry that he never explicitly states or deals with, right? Yeah, and it is a, a, an interesting narrative. There's a book, I can't remember the title of it, but I read it a few years ago about William James's career. You know, he spent 30 years in parapsychological research, the Society for Psychical Research, I believe. And they, they were doing a lot of that. And there were the different factions and people would defect or come back. But there were also the people that could not be uh, found to be fraudulent. So in Hampshire, there was a woman named um, Lenora Piper. Mm. You know, we'll talk about a Yankee name. And she was just ordinary housewife and could do all this stuff. And they would hire detectives to try to figure out how she did it. Yeah. And never could. Right. So, you know, James was right in the middle of that. And he was, you know, he was, if something was proven to be fraudulent, he was not a, you know, true believer in that sense. He was very... But when it was all said and done, he said, yeah, there's some strange, strange stuff going on. <laughs> that's a weird, it, that's an even extra weird piece to this is the, is the hucksterism and the spookiness. <laughs> yeah. It's sitting side by side and like sometimes intermixed in the same experience, right? Yeah, I mean, and, that, and that's in our DNA too, because that's kind of the Wizard of Oz, isn't it? Uh-huh, yeah. Right? Don't look at the man behind the curtain type stuff. Don't look at the man behind the curtain, but then when you wake up after the tornado, you're like, mm, that wasn't just a dream. Right. You know. Um, right. And there are some, there are some, and occasionally in places he sort of addresses this um, incidentally. Like he won't say, this could be fraud, but here's how it's valued. He just sort of mentions like, I think it's in the Mary Todd Lincoln piece where, um, President Lincoln's wife is, you know, trying to contact Willie after he dies, their son. Uh, and then when he dies, she's contacting him. Um, this is sort of a famous picture of her with the ghost of Abraham Lincoln behind her. Uh, and her son has her like locked up for, um, right. Says she's crazy and spending all the family money on this stuff. And she's like, no, I got to talk to my husband and kid. And he sort of makes, um, Horowitz makes a kind of a comment that's like, for the people who really believed this stuff, um, it provided some of the most profound experiences of their lives, right? Which I think is an indirect dealing with the sense of fraud. Like, even if you're conning me into believing that I'm talking to my dead son, mm -hmm. if I really buy in and believe that, that's transformative for me in a way. Mm-hmm that has value outside of uh, whether or not what you're saying is true. Yeah, and I think this next book we read kind of delves into this quite a bit. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that is a phenomenon. So there are, I mean, 
So right now, for instance, there are these chaos magicians mm-hmm. who build a whole system of applied magic, or whatever you want to call it, based on the writings of Lovecraft, uh. based on fiction. Right. The whole Cthulhu thing. Well, yeah, and so there's even a TV show now, uh, Lovecraft Country. Oh, yeah, I've been wanting to see that. Yeah, some people say it's good. Um, and then, you know, you see this, there's a, there's a book, um, there's a fiction, a novel called, um, of course, now I can't remember it. It's a novel written by an African-American author um, about these soldiers in Italy, these African-American soldiers in World War II. And there's this character in there who his street name is Walking Thunder. And he's got this hustle back in St. Louis or someplace where he's a street preacher and he can make money. And he says, he doesn't believe any totally cynical uh, bad man, but he says there's sometimes when he's in it and something happens and he's not sure if it's real or not. And it seems to affect the people around him. And he's such a captivating character because to deal with this, you know, is the spirit trying to get me in my hustle? Right. You know, it's amazing. He will go off into the nearest, uh, you know, ghetto or whatever and just get fucked up <laughs> to try to make that go away and go back to being the guy with the hustle. Um, so I think there's, you know, and, and Elmer Gantry, right? So what a great story. I mean, if you haven't seen the movie, watch the movie with Burt Lancaster, but he's that same guy. And he's a shyster, but he gets so far into this thing that the division between real and unreal, it gets blurred. Right. Um, right. There's something about, one way to interpret that is there's like something about the imagination and the unconscious that gets evoked even in moments of like theater. Right. Yes, it's in this case. What's so strange about it, it seems to be transcending your your intention. Right, it's operating. I mean, your intention is there because you're naming these things. Right, but you don't have to believe. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's that independent of your belief. Yeah, you provoked it, and here it comes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Really wild. Which actually is at the heart of chaos magic. Right. You don't have to believe in it to work with it. Super postmodern approach to the yeah, it's very but it yeah yeah. You wonder if that's baked into something American here. Chaos magic, I think. I mean, it's it's well, or just this sort of like playing with things in a freewheeling kind of way. Yeah to see what'll happen, make some money <laughs> and something happens. And, and then now we got a whole story and a whole little cultural stream coming out of it. Right. I mean, it's kind of back to my, our last conversation for me in a way, these maps and territories thing. Mm-hmm. At some point, at some point, if the map gets enchanted without reference to any kind of truth value right it's phenomena follows in its wake right and 
you can't really say that the phenomena isn't real. I mean, it seems like we're, we're in this territory where truth versus real. Yeah. There's, um, there's a fuzzy gray area between. Yeah, right? Right. But the, the, so the Americanness of it, I feel like, is in the pragmatism that can evolve in that space. Mm -hmm. like, well, I don't know, but the, the, what does it do? What does it do? Does it work? That's right. Do, do I get to talk to my dead kid? Okay. Do right. I get to... Make and who are you to say that isn't my dead kid if what I'm hearing from him is in his voice? Right. With cadence or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Then great. Then yeah. that's working, whether it's true or not. Like it, it's working. Yeah. Right? And, and that feels like... That feels like the thing that also matches with AA um and and throughout this book right is that sort of sense of like here's all this weird stuff i don't really know what's real but it's we can do something with it right and i can touch the planchette and it will start talking to us the ouija board will start talking right put the circle back around us like what are we doing with it yeah i mean so with aa the, you know just the overwhelming beauty of it is Bunch of weird guys, completely non-professional, huge social problem. They come up with a solution and they, they are piecing together something out of really weird ingredients. Right. And they create something new and it, it works. Um, but in the, even the background of AA is always the question of, you know, some people want to monetize it, hustle it. I mean, people accuse me of that. Um, sure. Well, I mean, that's Bill Wilson from the yeah, beginning. yeah, right out, right out the gate. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm left with some, I'm left with some interesting questions. And then, you know, there was I'm reading some other book where, You know, the worst, some character says, the, the worst things get, the better the stuff sells. How, what is, what you, how so? Like the, the more demonic it is or whatever. <laughs> no, I, I think there's truth to that. No, meaning the more, the more social tension, cultural crisis, economic. Oh, 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 sure. Yeah. It, so, there's, a, there's a turn to the spirit in, in times of crisis. Right. Yeah. But also, you know, sometimes on the level of let's get the rent paid. Oh, um, sure. So. But those go in hand in hand. I feel like. They if do. If there's an uptick in popular need for some other world that's better than this one, or some kind of assurance beyond what I see in the newspaper, then the culture is ripe for the huckster. And the right? profit. And the profit, both. Sometimes in the same form. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So this, now this gets really interesting because where we're landing archetypally is we're landing with the trickster. Right. We're landing with the, maybe the American version of the trickster. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the trickster as an archetype is uh, Hermes and the, coyote and all that but he's always been associated with commerce mm -hmm. and commerce is always is, is in, in the archetype is has to have an amoral quality 
that you cannot thrive in commerce if you're too scrupulous. Well, yeah. Yeah, and then furthermore, if you're really into doing business, you can't be too picky about who you do business with. Right. Right. Um, and it's about moving between worlds, commerce, but it's always, the trickster always has this element of just when you think you have it by its tail, it, it gets you. Right. Yeah. Um, like it's not going to be pinned down as real or not real. Yeah, you're not going to use it. Yeah, it's not going to be pinned down as real or not real. Right. right. That's right. I often, you know, when I'm blathering about being recovered, you know, I, I'm beginning to develop this sort of weird meta-awareness about that. That, uh-huh. that sounds really strange to most people. <laughs> right. Um, but in my map, I'm recovered and there are a bunch of people on the map that are recovered. Right. Um, and you're really talking about something. I mean, on the one hand is it's, it seems it, it is stunning, right? On the other hand, it's kind of ordinary because I don't think anymore that it's just people that go through steps one through 10 get recovered. I mean, I think there's recovered people out there and never went to a meeting. Yeah, for sure. Um, and there's people that went one through 10 and never got recovered. Yeah, never got recovered. <laughs> uh, that seems to be like one of those things that exist in that place, you know, with Bigfoot and the ghost. <laughs> <laughs> Like recovery itself. Yeah, recovery. Yeah, there's there's a recovered guy and there's Bigfoot and there's <laughs> yeah and there's a bunch of people that saw it. It's like a cryptozoological phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I feel like we just phased into maybe we're wrapping up, but I don't know. I think we have. Um, yeah. I think. Um, I think if people like this and they want to keep going with us, they should join us for the next book, which is yeah. Strange Frequencies, The Extraordinary Story of the Technological Quest for the Supernatural by Peter Burbagall. I'm going to, yeah, I'll, I'll rubber stamp that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I think, um, a lot of people are commenting on this, that with the digital culture, there is a lot of digital synchronous phenomena happening. Okay. Where you think of somebody and the phone rings or, right. you know, the, the connections that can be made through the internet are enormously enhanced and they just sometimes pop. Um, so I think it's kind of a logical, step from Horowitz. Is that fair? You read it. I haven't, I've only seen yeah. it. Yeah. It's an interesting piece that sort of takes, I think it does a couple of things. It takes the kind of um, cultural trends that there are surveyed in this book and focuses on like the material aspects of it. Like what kinds of stuff did they make? Right. What? how, if we, gonna, if we got magic, like how, how is it also infused with different technologies that evolved over time? So that's, that's cool. Right. You get, how do you reprogram a computer to do um, the I Ching or whatever, right? Is that right. work or what are the, what are the 
resonances there. And then it also more, more um, directly than this book sort of talks about that, um, I guess that tricksterism that, that we landed on is like, um, is it real? Is it not? Is this a joke? Is it, does it matter? Like those questions are a little more in the four in that book than they are in this one. So um, it's- Yeah, it's actually kind of what little I've read is spooky. Yeah. So when he gets into those mechanical, what are they called? The Atomi automatons or automata? The automaton stuff was frightening and fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, which are like, um, you know, machines built to look like they're alive, right? And mm -hmm. are they, maybe? Yeah, what is it that they're infused with from the human? Right. Is there some sort of strange, is this evidence of some sort of strange godlike capacity that we really do have? Right. Um, which goes back to Horowitz and the whole reality is somehow plastic to our imagination and will. Right. Yeah. And part of that is uh, like uh, it's like taking that into hacker culture, right? Things are plastic to my will. I'll build it, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, excellent. And away we go. All right. Have a good day. You too. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.